Welcome to Don't You Forget About Me, the new wave music podcast. My name's Steve. And my name is Trent, but you can call me T-Bone. We would like to welcome you to our inaugural episode of Don't You Forget About Me, the new wave music podcast. So this podcast, Steve and I had talked about it for a little while, and what we want it to really be about is new music from core new wave artists. You know, there's plenty of uh, bands that we all loved from the 80s and early 90s that have put out music that just don't get airplay. There's Radio stations don't play them, uh, which makes no sense to me because there's plenty of great music. Yeah, and unless you've stumbled across it through like their, their social media or sometimes Spotify will recommend new music, it's a shame you don't get to hear some of these songs as they're as good or better. It's that they're, they've been known for. Absolutely. And, and along with that, we also want to at times look into new bands that have that kind of familiar sound that you, you'd almost think maybe they came from, uh, from the 80s or early 90s. I know, Steve, you have a favorite. I do. My, one of my new favorites that we're hopefully going to be talking about more in depth would be uh, California's Dear Boy. Yeah, you know, and, and they are fantastic, and they, they really do fit into this kind of musical sense that this podcast will be about. And as we go on as well, once co- concerts start resuming, hopefully we'll also kind of bring you some updates through concerts we go see or reviews of concerts, uh, music news. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's there's a lot of different things that this podcast can include, and uh, we, we hope you'll enjoy it. Just a little bit of back history on this. Uh, me and T-Bone first started this Way back in 2019, when we had the opportunity to do a panel for the local uh, Salt Lake Comic Con, or as it's known now as Fan X, we did a panel on the John Hughes movies, impact he had, and, and how those, the music uh, helped define pop culture, his iconic moments of his movies. As part of that podcast, we had the opportunity to interview a couple of different bands. One of the bands that was just phenomenal that we interviewed was OMD. Right, yeah. I, I contacted their management, and I was able to schedule an interview before one of their concerts here, which, uh, again, also was about a month or so ahead of the FanX uh, convention. And uh, so they they were very happy to be able to uh, do an interview with us. We did it in person in their hotel room, actually. And, uh, I mean, they were the nicest guys in the world. It went really well. And part of that interview, not only did we talk about the, of course, the history of the their, their iconic song, If You Leave, but they also kind of went into some of the history of how they reformed back up in, in 2006 and what led to them ultimately starting to record more albums. And we will throw that interview on at the end of this podcast as kind of a bonus. That's a good idea, yeah, because it, it, it's perfect for this kind of situation. It's really enjoyable to listen to. So we'll go ahead and get started. We're going to review their first album. The first album we're going to review of theirs was Electric English that was released in April of 2013. Right. That's their 12th studio album, I believe. Um, I mean, if you really wanted to, you could go back even an album earlier, The History of Modern, because before that, they'd kind of broken up a little bit and they weren't really together anymore. Um, And then they came and did History of Modern, kind of their reunion album. But we're going to stick with uh, starting on English or Electric English first. Yeah, and Electric English also with this album was the first time that Andy and Paul worked together in person to record the album. 
Right. History of modern music was uh, all done remotely. Yeah. They said they wanted to do an electronic album that was free of anything organic. Uh, they wanted to experiment and kind of get back to the roots of their earlier work. Uh, and so this album here, Electric English, was inspired by Andy McCluskey's then recent divorce. And I think it comes a lot of it comes through in a lot of the songwriting and songs that we're going through. Uh, when this was released, there was a couple singles from the album, Metroland. Dresden. The future will be silent and night cafe. As far as the charts go, it, it Electric English reached uh, number one on the independent UK charts, number eight in the US top dance and electric albums, and number 12 overall in the UK charts. I look at these, and, and a lot of critics have also said the same thing, that this album and the one that we're going to talk to about afterwards, The Punishment of Luxury, that they're really, in many ways, uh, a tribute to Kraftwerk, which was one of their main influences back in the late 70s when they started working on their albums. And... Um, you really can hear that kind of craft work sound, especially on, on this album in particular, on things like Please Remain Seated and Decimal. Uh, they they really have that that very minimalistic craft work kind of sound to their album. Yeah, that even came across in, in, in one of the other tracks, Atomic Ranch, reminding oh, me of craft work as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my favorite line in that song is, I want a house and a car and a robot wife. I want a house. I want a house. I just think that's brilliant. But, you know, I, I, I mentioned Kraftwerk, and then I was kind of looking through some of their other songs on this album, and another one that comes to mind is The Future Will Be Silent. It's very Kraftwerk-esque. Minimal lyrics that just kind of repeat over and over again to their to their music. And um, I, I think that, that you, can, you can obviously see that they wanted to move a little bit more away from the pop that they had done in the in the late 80s, maybe even a little bit into the early 90s, and uh, move back to some of the, the work that they'd done on like Dazzle Ships back in the very early 80s. Yeah, one thing that they made clear in some of the interviews when they got back together was that with, they didn't really have a mainstream record label, so they didn't have to produce the hits. So these are more what they want to do. And they even in some of the interview they shared with us is some of their hits will fund where they can go back and do like the future will remain silent or the future will be silent. Yeah. So kind of diving into it. The first single that came out was, was Metroland. Metroland. Love this version on there. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's been compared to a Kraftwerk song also, but uh, I really don't see the connection uh, musically and definitely not uh, lyrically to Kraftwerk on this particular song, but no, it, it's a fantastic song. Uh, really kind of a, a pop song to start off the album. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great pop. As you kind of said, it could be a pop song. 
a seven plus minute pop song. <laughs> I love that the uh, album version takes about th- almost two and a half minutes to, of just the intro and the, <laughs> the, the prologue to even get into the, some of the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's not unusual for them. Actually, you know, they they do have a lot of songs that that really are are almost more instrumental than they are lyrical. And, um, and not and not always necessarily on these albums, but I mean it's been that way throughout their whole career. But yeah, it's the same thing here, where where it'll just go on for a while with some fantastic uh, synth, and then the lyrics will come in, and then it takes off from there. Yeah, so I mean, if you definitely have the chance to listen to the album version versus the single version, which is about four minutes, go with the album version. Yeah, so yeah. much better. Oh, much better, absolutely. Um, and I do like on Metroland. It's kind of OMD can be a little snarky sometimes without being snarky. Um, I like how Metro Round was written about um, how Andy said it was through London. They were selling this idea of come away from the city and move to the uh, the open fields of, of, of the city. Well, that, that slowly became the Metro Land. Everyone was moving out of the city into there, and it became a new, a new little metropolitan. So yeah. kind of became full circle to nice. the act of reaching for Utopia led to its destruction. Yeah, you know, on, on this album, a number of the songs really have an OMD familiarity to them. They don't necessarily... <laughs> They don't necessarily sound like they're plagiarizing their own music, but many of the songs, especially, and I, I, I really felt especially with Stay With Me, uh, as though that song could have come off of Crush or The Pacific Aid. One of the next songs I think we want to talk about is Helen of Troy off of uh, in, uh, English Electric. And for me, especially, I, I couldn't help but think of uh, their previous song from 1981, Joan of Arc. Yeah, it really sounded like Joan of Arc or also Maid of, Maid of Orleans came absolutely. to mind as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the last couple of times we've seen them in concert, they've they've played it. And it's a great song, great song live. Oh, absolutely. A fantastic beat to it. And going back to Stay With Me, that's another song I really enjoyed. I think this is the first time since uh, 1988 that Paul Humphreys actually started singing on a song. Right, yeah. It's a beautiful ballad, really, and, and vocals by Paul. Mm-hmm. And, and the only song on here that has vocals from him. Everything else is uh, is sung by Andy. Um, yeah, and going through that, I mean, uh, it looks like that was a song that Andy was struggling with writing. He turned it over to Paul, who then started putting some autographical lyrics in there about his relationship he had with his daughter when him and his wife uh, split up and went through a divorce when she was young. Um, so it's his time reflecting on on his time as an absent father and the difficulties him and his daughter faced. And I think it just comes across great. Oh, really really big fan. Another track I really enjoyed that was Kissing the Machine. And this one's kind of a remake, but not really. It's one that was back recorded originally back in 93 when OMD, I believe, was on the splits. The track was originally co-written by Andy McCluskey and he worked with Carl Bartos, who recently left Kraftwerk. Uh, and they uh, ended up recording the song Kissing the Machine. English, they went back and re- retooled it. Paul Humphreys tinkered with it a little bit, and he actually added the voice in the machine, 
which is at the time his uh, partner, Claudia Brucken of Propaganda. Yeah, it's kind of a dreamy narration in the middle of the song and uh, really interesting to listen to because it, it contrasts with the song itself and, uh, and really comes across perfectly. Great song. If you have the opportunity to seek out the original, listen to that. It's good. This one's great. Yeah. I just wanted to also mention uh, who was on this album. Of course, we had Andy on vocals, keyboards, and bass, and Paul on keyboards and vocals. But there was also uh, Martin Cooper, who'd been with the band for quite some time, on keyboards. And uh, Malcolm Holmes was on drums, but this was his final OMD album due to health issues. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, he had a heart attack um, a number of years ago. I think he he even had it might have been on stage to tell you the truth. That was right. I remember that when he was stage. when they were right. off, shortly after we actually saw them. I think back in right. Oh, we've seen them a few times. Early two thousand. <laughs> yeah, early two. Late, early 2000, yeah. 2010, 2017. Yeah. Well, you know, and the thing is, is that he was on uh, Punishment. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, he was on their previous album, History, Mo- History of Modern. Yeah. yeah. Hard to remember. They have so many albums. But uh, he was on that album also. And um, I think that uh, it was in between that time that he had the heart attack and, and his health had deteriorated. So this was the last album that he was on. All right. And that brings us to their next album, The Punishment of Luxury. 2017. Uh, obviously, right after after English Electric, and so this was their 13th album. And, you know, going back to um, who was in the band, it did change a little bit with this one. Andy and Paul, of course, they're the core members. Uh, This one, uh, like I say, we said Malcolm Holmes uh, had his health issues, and so they brought in Stuart Kershaw on drums. And again, uh, uh, one of the members that's been with them for many, many years, decades, uh, Martin Cooper, he's also on keyboards and saxophone. Uh, Punishment of Luxury debuted number one, or excuse me, number four on the UK chart album. It was the band's first album to reach the top ten in their home country since 1991's Sugar Tax. The record topped the UK independent charts. It reached the top ten on various European charts, as well as Billboard's Dance Electric albums and independent charts in the US. When we talked about uh, English Electric, um, we talked about the songs that seemed very Kraftwerk-esque on English Electric. On Punishment of Luxury, you've got Isotype. And uh, Robot Man. To me, you mentioned one song, Robot Man. To me, that was probably the weakest of the album. It might be. I mean, it, it's not a, it's not the greatest song in the world, it, but it definitely is very, very Kraftwerk-esque. Yeah, see, I couldn't tell if they were trying to go Kraftwerk tribute or a little bit of Sparks. 
Oh, I, I don't know about Sparks. I didn't really see that in there, but uh, I mean, I can see where you're coming from. But uh, yeah, no, it definitely it definitely seemed you know, definitely craftwork oriented to me. But yeah, it, it wouldn't say it's probably their their best song on the album. No, but it does have some of the like you said, some of the OMD classics, or at least the OMD classics now of now. Punishment of Luxury, Isotype. Oh, yeah. I think the last two times we've seen them, they played those both those live. Wonderful songs. I mean, you know, they 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 just really take advantage of their um their history and their musicianship that they've 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 honed for the past couple of decades and they they both just sound fantastic on it uh paul has one song that he sings on with this one what have we done i tell you you know i don't know necessarily it's my favorite song on the album but i absolutely love this song it's just lyrical it's beautiful his vocals are fantastic on it i thoroughly enjoy it Oh, I agree. Um, we'll listen to the album. It kind of, like you said, it kind of comes out, it kind of fits a little differently, but it works very well if that makes sense. And when love seems so heartless, when light turns to darkness, the only her star can be seen. What have we done? Done. Done. And again, kind of going back, as we mentioned on the last album, a little bit of their snarkiness without being as snarky. Absolutely. Listening to Kiss, 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 Bang, Bang, Bang. Yeah. Some of those lyrics I was a little surprised on. <laughs> you know, a sexy title needs a grinding synth line. And that one has one that peeks out underneath a sultry instrumentation. And it is a little bit on the on the raucous side for these boys. But I love it. You know, I mean, I, I, it just kind of grinds there. And it really makes sense with a title like Kiss, 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 Bang, Bang, Bang. definitely and yeah like you said it's a different little side of omd i don't think you really see that much of them but it, it works oh yeah yeah and, and that's nice you know it's nice to hear something different i mean that's one of the things that i i love so much about omd is they have changed their sound over time but at the same time they do have some familiarities with their music with their lyrics with their their melodies that can take you back to the mid-80s or the early 90s. And many of these songs here are a little bit different than what they used to do in the past, but they do have that familiarity. Yeah, and I think the difference is they don't have a major record label that, that they're having to say, we need to hear the radio Oh, hits. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Absolutely. They're not necessarily looking for hits. You know, the, the, the there's no label telling them that... You know, three-fourths of the album has to be playable on the radio. Don't think I'm misspeaking when it sounds like both of us would highly recommend Punishment of Luxury. Uh, no question. No as, question. As well as Electric you know? English. I think you were saying that you liked Electric English a little bit more. Um, I am so torn because I really do like Punishment of Luxury. You know, I mean, obviously, I, I recommend it for any fan or anybody who's... Uh, Kind of, you know, new to OMD. Um, I just, I really love this album. I, I think it's highly listenable. You know, it's going to bring new things to you, whether you're a new fan or a, a current 
fan. Yeah, I, I would agree. The lifelong fans or new fans will, will definitely enjoy it. It's not that I hated it. I, I really enjoyed it. It's just yeah. if I had to give one the edge over the other, well, it would yeah. go to Electric English. Absolutely. I mean, you know, oftentimes you're going to find that, that you, you do have a preference over one, but that's not saying that you discount anything from another. So I, I think we can both agree on that, that they're both wonderful albums that definitely deserve to be in your collection. Well, hopefully this has been some insight for the last two OMD albums. Hopefully you guys like what you hear. There'll be more. This is our first podcast, so hopefully think or not hopefully things will get better they will but my my method when we do panels is is always less of me and more of more of the bands or more of the artists so i'd really like just to turn over we're going to flip it over to the interview we did with omd a couple years ago again thank you for andy and paul they were they they were more than willing to be honest about at that time you know the late the mid to late 80s um, and uh, what they had to do, what they were expected to do, what they enjoyed doing. I, I think you're really going to enjoy listening to this uh, this interview. Um, uh, John Hughes wasn't the director of Pretty in Pink, but how closely did you work with them on that movie? Yeah, well, we were working with him. I mean, he, he approached us and asked us, and uh, uh, we were in L.A. He invited us down to when they were, where they were filming the movie, so we met Molly and John Cryer and... Uh, and everyone and uh, and then he handed us a script and said you know can you write a song for this part of the film so we went away and we wrote a song didn't we? no it was great I mean, it was great because we went down to Paramount and we were on the set when they were yeah. filming and and the, all three of them John Hughes John Cryer and Molly were all like oh we're big fans we love the music and you've got to remember at that stage we'd only just had our first top 40 hit in the States for a long yeah. time despite all the success in Europe we were kind of college radio, alternative radio in the States. Um, so it was, we were kind of taken aback, but uh, yeah, we, and we'd, we'd seen the success the Simple Minds had had with Breakfast Club. So we were like, hell yeah, we want a song in the movie. So it was, it was a great opportunity. Yeah, and then we, so we wrote this song. Um, uh, we, we went back home, wrote this song, then we came back out. Great song, LA, great called song. Goddess of Love. <laughs> Right. And I was going to ask you about that yeah. also. As a matter of fact, I'll go to that one now uh, instead. It, you know, so so in love or uh, if you leave was not primarily the original song for no, it. it wasn't. What caused that change? Well, the thing was, in typical Hollywood, Hollywood fashion, they put the movie out to to a, a committee. You know, people test audience, test audience, yes. basically, and the test audience all hated the end. No, no, no. Specifically, the teenage girls <laughs> hated <laughs> the ending because yeah. the original <laughs> ending. Yeah. The the uh, Molly Ringwald's character Andy ends up with her best friend Ducky. That was right. the original storyline, and of course all the girls who went no 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 he's her friend he's great but she's got the love stories with Andrew McCartney pretty boy so <laughs> they had to reshoot the end of the movie and we had specifically been asked to do the song for the big ending where it resolves at the prom. And lyrically, our song didn't make sense. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so then we, we flew to uh, Los Angeles and we were get with our tape of Goddess of Love to mix it. Uh, we had two days off before like a two months American tour. Oh. And, uh, and so we thought, well, we just went to mix it and see John and everything and finalize everything. And we get this message when we land, uh, contact me immediately. And then he says, um, sorry guys, your song doesn't work. Can you write us a new one? You're right. said, you're going to be kidding, right? All our equipment has gone to San Francisco for the start of the tour. We've got no gear. We've got two days and you want us to write a new song. So um, Yeah, that must have been nerve-wracking. Yeah, so we said, don't worry, I'll put you in the best studio. We went to Larrabee Studios, it was amazing. And, and we'll hire you some equipment. Oh, so, my gosh. Um, and it was really strange because 
you know, we had always written on synthesizers and then we'd moved to computers. And we didn't have that stuff. We were waiting for it to arrive from the hire company. But we had a deadline. We had a day to get this thing nailed. So Paul and I sat down like old-fashioned songwriters, him at the piano and me standing next to him, and he's just banging out chords. And it was like totally alien. Now, this, this is the way everybody else writes, but not us. <laughs> yeah. um, and we tried and tried, and then the computer arrived, and our engineer was there because he was supposed to be mixing the other song. And we worked on it. We thought, well, this is working. It's okay. Finally, about four in the morning, we did a very rough demo. We did a rough mix, put it on a cassette, sent it in a motorcycle to Paramount Studios, and we went to bed. And we, remember, we're jet lagged as well. We'd only we're just landed, you know? Yeah. And we were like, oh, do Nine o'clock in the morning, phone rings, manager. Yeah, John's hurt. It's great. Can you go back and finish it? We're like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> <Back in the laughs> studio. Um, yeah, so we went back in and we did the saxophone overdubs and a few more things. And But yeah, if you leave totally written off the top of our heads desperate and the biggest hit in America yeah. I mean you know I, I think we were really lucky because nine times out of ten you do that and you you go oh that's not working you know but we somehow got it right oh so absolutely. We I, I, lucky. you absolutely did well so when you had to go between songs had you seen that scene in the movie at all or was it just kind of going off of what he was telling you we had seen the scene in the movie yeah because they said to us we need you to... The only parameter is it's got to be 120 beats per minute because we film them dancing at the prom to Don't You Forget About Me, which is that tempo. So we were like, okay, that's the only parameter. So we wrote If You Leave at the same tempo as the previous song, 120. And when it was finally accepted, we went to the Hollywood program. We the limos, red carpet, Chinese yeah. man's theatre. Because we're right at the end, so we're sat there kind of like, going, yeah, the music's great, but come on, get, get to our bit, get to our bit, you know. And we finally get to the prom scene. I'm like, oh, and we went, hang on a minute. Who edited this? Nobody's dancing on the beat. It didn't, the tempo doesn't matter. And for five minutes, everybody's dancing off the beat. Off the beat. We're like... I don't think we fixed that in the end, but we couldn't believe it. But fortunately, the song fit right into the scene, regardless yeah, of whether they're but matched yeah, up to so the scene. It, it, was, it was amazing. With that. That was, we waited for the big finale, and we were like, nobody's dancing on the beat. <laughs> so what's the point of that? You know? um, had you uh, guys seen any of uh, Hugh's previous films, and did they influence you at all in writing the s- songs for this movie? I mean, the, the films didn't influence writing the song, but... But the the films had great influence on everybody. Really, man, I think he, time. he really he really captured something with his movies, with trains, planes, and automobiles. And you know, he spoke to a certain generation and a certain type of person. You know? I think particularly his what you know are called the the Brat Pack movies. They were scripted with characters who were kind of alt- outsiders. Yeah, you know, they were high school geeks and the outsiders and the alternatives. And I think it was quite logical that Hughes's kind of Anglophile taste in music, that alternative European music, would be the sort of music that those kids were listening to. So it made sense that he was asking uh, mostly British bands, which was so it seemed to, to, to equate to the characters in the movie. But I think that one of the other, you know, strange things really uh, about uh, about doing, doing it was that... You know, for us, we were having to write a song that fitted in a movie 
and in a scene that was actually alien to us because we don't have proms in the UK. Yeah. We don't have an end of high school prom. So, and also, the, and I'll let you into a secret now, there's a line in the song that doesn't make sense. Because kids in England, you go from your junior school to your high school at the age of 11, and you're there for seven years. Oh Not four. You finish at 18. Whereas in the States, you've kind of got junior, middle, and high kind of thing. And it's the last four years in high school. So seven years went under the bridge is actually a reference to English high school that yeah, doesn't, make, doesn't make sense in the US, actually. That's very interesting. <laughs> oh my there you go. Yeah, lyrical insights. Yeah. 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 To, me, to me, it was just kind of a lyric, you know, that just kind of flows with the yeah. song. But, but it, it really has a more meaning to yeah. that. It's the idea that, that high school is coming to an end and it's seven years gone under the bridge ah. but in America it would have been four years <laughs> absolutely absolutely um, obviously a great song I mean we've already talked about that but uh, did you ever think while you, in that quick time that you were producing and writing that song that it would ever be so popular uh, well no you, when you're writing a song you never it, I mean we initially write songs to please ourselves and we never think that they're going to be popular and if and when they are if and when they are it's a great bonus. You know? Oh, absolutely. But, but writing that song, if you leave, I was talking about this the other day to someone, and um, it was because we had such little time, uh, when we were at the writing stage at the piano uh, and, uh, and Andy writing the words, we had this verse and chorus, and we got the chord change into the chorus, but we could never get back to the verse chordly, and I tried all these different things, and we were running out of time, and in the end I said, Let's just keep changing key because if you keep changing key, you can get the. Uh, That's why the, the song chords. modulates up and down and all over. We were trying to fit the pieces together and we didn't have time. It was just like, go up, go down. Get, you know. In hindsight, I mean, and when you listen to it now, you think, oh, that was all beautifully planned. But really, it was just getting out of a bit of a musical quandary. Well, then that makes you wonder did you think that maybe the song wasn't going to work? Well, I mean, we thought it was a good tune. We we, thought yeah, we thought, good and we, we figured it would be in the movie. Uh, I mean, yeah. the, the, ori the original edit as well was five and a half minutes long because we, again, we, we just the end just went on and on and on and on. So another couple of you know fun things that people might not know about it is we we trimmed it down to four twenty five. They said we were amazed they wanted it as the lead single. We thought the psychedelic first song would be the big one. It seems to be the obvious one, Pretty in Pink. But yeah. you know. but so, so suddenly we had to kind of do. Uh, we had to get it ready, we had to do a single, we had to do a video. But they kept saying, nobody's going to play a song on radio that's longer than four minutes. And it's like, well, it's five and a half. So we were cutting and cutting. We couldn't find a place to cut because it ruined it every time we did it. We yeah. finally got it down to 4.25 and we just couldn't find another place to edit. So these are the days before digital. So we just wrote on the box, 4.01. <laughs> <laughs> and it's 4.25 long and we just lied about how long it was. We just lied on the label. And no, one, no one said anything, it got played on the radio. Yeah. And, was it? And, and another thing, in the second verse, there's a little kind of like strange steel drum thing that goes, diddly, 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 which is a real hook. That was supposed to be landing on the downbeat of the chorus. He programmed it wrong and it, yeah, came, it, it came in came off wrong time and, and we went, Oh, yeah. oh, that's great, actually. <laughs> so, again, accident, another accident that gave it that kind of lilt, which... Uh, and I imagine that oftentimes... I, I, I guess that would happen more often than you'd think, and suddenly just something works. There's a lot of happy accidents when you're writing yeah. songs. You, know, you make mistakes that turn into a... It seemed like a great idea, but it was actually a happy accident. Did you guys work with any... or, or have any involvement with other bands that were on that soundtrack? 
Well, we knew a lot of the bands. That was the weird thing. On the plane over to the premiere, we were with uh, New Order, and of course we'd been on Factory with Joy Division, so we knew those guys from, you know, when we were playing in crappy little clubs to 30 people back in 1979. And here we were, you know, sort of seven, eight years later, going to a Hollywood premiere. And, and Echo and the Bunnymen, who... Echo and the Bunnymen and OMD, we both played our first ever gig in Eric's Club in Liverpool in October 1978. So, you know, these guys went right back to the beginning with us, and here we all were. Going to Hollywood. Down the red right carpet. Amazing. Who would have thought it? <laughs> what are the positives and the negatives of having such a huge hit in a popular movie? Um... I don't think there's any negative. I can't think of a negative. I was just thinking, is there a negative? No, not really. You know what? Because some people get stupid about their big hit. And they go, oh, I'm so bored of it. I played it thousands of times. And they don't play it live or they play a boring acoustic version of it to be different live. Why? We're proud of our hits. That is awesome. We're proud of our hits. That song has been good to you, so treat it with respect. And also treat the audience with respect. It's part of their journey of life, their memory. So don't screw around with it. Well, and I would have to imagine that even if you've played it a thousand times, Mm -hmm. it might be the first time that somebody's seen it in concert, at least. They've heard the song many times, but they may never have have heard you play it live. Yeah, and you know, for OMD, there's two sides of OMD. There's there's the kind of pop side that people know, but there's also the kind of more experimental Mm -hmm. side. And, And the pop side has helped pay for the experimental side. If we were just an experimental band, we probably would just have remained uh, obscure and people would never have been introduced to our more interesting side. Oh, yeah, the, the hits have actually introduced, as Paul said, the more experimental stuff. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I think some of those more experimental songs have probably become more popular because mm-hmm. of people's... Yeah, because they're exploring... Well, you know, you saw us play in town 18 months ago and we come out on stage to you know, a collage of some of the weird stuff off the new album, and we go straight into Ghost Star and Isotype, which was actually a beautiful way to start, you know. And the crowd now, okay, we're going to get the beauty and the weird stuff, they're still going to hit us between the eyes with a single somewhere down the line, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we go, we'll go on the whole journey, you know. Oh, no question, no question. Well, the last uh, one... I do have, I yes. have to say something else. Oh, about. yes. The other great thing about having If You Leave in our back pocket where we're in America is... It's like playing poker, and you know you've got four aces. Because when that drum fill comes in at the front, it's just like going... People go nuts. There you go, win in hand. (laughs) (laughs) Crowd go crazy. It is, it's like sitting there with four aces in your hand. It's great. Yeah, no, like I said, we've seen you many, many, many times. And uh, when when that comes on, and then there's obviously other songs that are enormously popular, when that song comes on, oh, the crowd just goes wild. And I bet you guys, I, I, it's got to be a thoroughly enjoyable it's thing to have I mean, you know, we're there to entertain and the crowd are going nuts. So. Listen, for a couple of kids who started out in his mother's back room when she was at work on a Saturday afternoon with junk equipment because we couldn't afford it or things that he cannibalized out of his auntie's radios, <laughs> making music that even our friends thought was crap. A few years later, to stand on stage in front of thousands of people and have them go, <sighs> We still kind of look at each other and go, really? How did that happen? <laughs> Great! <laughs> and enjoy it while you got it. Yeah, right? well, exactly. We enjoy every moment. Uh, and you know, I was saying this as well the other day, that um, uh, being an OMD now, 
I'm actually enjoying it more than... I mean, I enjoyed it, obviously, in the 80s, but it was hard work. Whereas we do it on our own terms now, and, and it's really fun being an OMD. And, and we've, we've been kind of liberated as well, because we're totally in control of everything now. Uh, uh, you know, we don't have a record company telling us what we need to do, and when we need to work, and when we need to deliver an album. We can... You know, we have all this creative freedom again. Yeah. Well, now, this wasn't a question I was going to ask you, but it kind of does bring up that to me, and that is, you did leave the band for yeah, a brief period of time. Uh, were you just kind of burnt out, or what, well, what brought you back? We were all burnt out, yeah. I mean, by the end of the 80s, uh, we'd sold millions and millions of records, yet we still owed Richard Branson a million pounds, which at that time was um, a lot of money. And believe me, it wasn't because we li were living in castles and flying and like private planes. Yeah. It's we're just a crap deal, yeah, basically. We signed a bad deal, and, and yeah, listen, there's loads of people in the world who've worked harder than us for less money. Oh, so, sure, you know, yeah. But it was just, we worked hard, and we were like, we've sold millions, and we owe you money? Now, by complete contrast, when we did the Depeche Mode tour with them at the end of the 80s, they were earning enough to retire, and they had a record deal where after costs, they split the profit 50-50 with Mute. Yeah. So they were making so much money. And we were on pennies. And, oh, and so it was, it was yeah, just the so deal they signed. They signed to a great label. Is um, that, is so that, that so it became very It was frustrating. Do you know the biggest thing was it wasn't about the money. It was about the pressure we were under. Because yeah. we'd come off tour and our manager and accountant would be like, you've you got, got no money. money. A new album out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was it. And so the new album had to be done. Oh, go ready for Christmas because that's when the sales are. And we'd be like, but that gives us like six weeks to write an album. Yeah. So everything we wrote, good, bad, or ugly, was on that album. Yeah. We didn't have the time to kind of edit. The luxury of kind of writing lots of songs and picking the best. So that yeah, was why know. at the end of the eighties we just had enough. Yeah, we were exhausted. Really. What brought you back? Yeah. Well, because, um, you know, Andy did a couple of albums as well. He did three oh, albums yeah. Where, yeah. in the 90s. Uh, and then he stopped. And then, I mean, the thing about the 90s was as well, electronic music seemed to be kind of out of fashion. It was more the grunge, the Britpop, that kind of stuff yeah. that was in vogue. And it seemed like electronic music, although we saw electronic music as the future, was kind of consigned to the to the past, to the The 80s. future had become electric guitars again, we were like, yeah, like how did that happen, you know? So, but when it turned, when, when it turned to, you know, into the noughties, as we call it, past 2000, um, there was interest again in electronic music, phones started to ring, we were both doing different things, and it, and it got to sort of the mid-2000s, and the phones, the phone did keep ringing a lot, and and Andy got a call saying, "Do you want to? Made of All is one of the biggest songs of all time in Germany. Do you want to go and do a TV show to celebrate it?" That was it. That TV show got. Him. Yeah. I phoned him and we phoned around. We just said, "Come on, guys, let's go to Germany for a couple of days and just celebrate the fact that we had the biggest selling single in Germany in 1982." Yeah. Uh, and that was the beginning of it. We That's we sat around. Somebody had flown us into Cologne. We were in a nice hotel. We were sitting there drinking beer. And I said, we did six minutes work yesterday and three minutes work today. Do you fancy doing this again for a living? We all said, yeah, why not? It's all cyclical, I would imagine. You know, you have guitars, synthesizer, guitars, synthesizers, you know, in the bands, and then you uh, have, you know, success the thing and the slow down. We're in this postmodern era, era now where it's, there isn't one fashion following the next. It's just all of these genres are, are, are okay to, to be in the pot. And you just have to do your genre really well yeah, to yeah. exist. Well, my last question. Um, 
after uh, If You Leave was released, what kind of success did you have as a band? What did, what did that bring you? The success of If You Leave certainly opened doors for us. Strangely enough, in all of the countries where we hadn't had much success previously, obviously the US, Australia, places like that, South Africa, and yet it seemed to close doors in places where we'd been successful previously. For example, If You Leave didn't even make the top 50 in the UK. Isn't that odd? Yeah, it's very odd. <laughs> so it's, um, but you know what? When you're driving around LA and on comes your song on the radio and you go, oh, comedy boredom, I'll change the channel. Oh, it's on another station. Oh, it's on another. That's when you know you've cracked it. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, do you have anything? No. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you so much. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank we really you. appreciate it. Again, thanks to Andy and Paul from OMD for being gracious enough to do an interview with us. And if you guys like what you hear from the Don't You Forget About Me, the New Wave Music Podcast, please like and subscribe. Thanks for listening.